Hotel chains in America are very known for one thing. I think of Ritz-Carlton was a chain of hotel that wanted to be known for this one thing, service, good service. Their goal was that from the time a customer drives up to the counter until the checkout, the customer was to be served like no other. Most people in common life understand the good service and the importance, and they want to be beneficiary of good service, good customer service. That's what I notice about America. Customer service is very important, not so much from where I come from in Italy. But again, it makes the difference between a product or a service we consider just okay and something that we consider as great service. And God says that in the kingdom, greatness is not measured by personal importance, a badge, but of a heart of service. That's what makes greatness in the kingdom of God. This is what we see in our story today. Jesus takes the shoes off from the disciples and he proceeds to do something strange. He washes their feet. Here in John 13, we begin the second part of the Gospel of John. John chapter 13 breaks the gospel in two and opens for the exaltation and the glory of Christ, which comes, however, through the humiliation uh, from the, the, the cross to the resurrection, from public ministry to the secrecy and intimacy of this upper room, farewell discourse to the disciples. From chapter 13 all the way to 17, opening then to the, to the passion of Christ. Few chosen individuals to prepare them and prepare the church to bring this mission forward after the betrayal, the arrest and the departure of Jesus to the Father. Jesus will no longer be present among the disciples. And here in our story, chapter 13 already reaches really the last hour, the last evening of Passover. Jesus will soon disclose himself to everyone through the cross. But unlike the other gospels, something happens here. There is a slow motion. Everything takes, it's like in a movie, a ralenty. Everything go, it goes slower. And uh, unlike other go gospels, also the Lo Last Supper, today we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper, but it's skipped. It's not found in the Gospel of John. Uh, John assumes that you already read other synoptic gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he speaks of what happened actually before the Lord's Supper. After the meal, the twelve in the upper room, Jesus desired to have this moment of intimacy with the disciples. But what happens during dinner? That is, the twelve are arguing with one another. Who is the greatest I am the greatest, says one, and the other ones, no, I am the greatest. No, I did this. No, I did that. And in the midst of that argument, as a response to that argument, comes this act from Jesus, which is skipped from the other gospel and is a very unusual thing. He washes, the master washes the feet of the disciples. What is the significance of this gesture? This is, a, as we said, a preparation for the disciple. And this is the first stage of preparing the disciples before Jesus goes away. 
that through this act, Jesus symbolically cleanses the community of the twelve, both literally but also spiritually. Remember, in Judaism, washing was a ritual thing. It almost, as you look at the entirety of where the gospel is going, is almost anticipating the unique cleansing that Jesus' impending death will achieve. However, there's something more in light of that quarrel of who is the greatest. Jesus leaves us an example to emulate, that we are to do as he did. And next week we'll zoom in to something that is already mentioned here in our text, which is the betrayals. Yet there's an astounding gesture beside that betrayal. We, we must not miss the significance in the overlaw plot of the story of the Gospel of John. And that is the significance that Christ's love is displayed in cleansing us. Two ways that Christ cleanses cleanse us here. He washes us from our sins away, but also He calls us now as His followers to lowly acts of service toward one another in the church, among believers. So let's look, first of all, what is this act that Jesus does in verses 1 to 5, which reflects the Savior's service. That Jesus does the, this act of love. He takes the place of a servant, and He washes His disciples' feet. You would expect this to, to be done by a servant. And instead, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, does that to His followers. We are, verse 1 tells us, before the feast of the Passover. Few, I want to say, hours left. Jesus knows the hour has come. We have already commented on that last week. And here again, we, we see the break and the beginning of a whole new section of the Gospel of John. That the hour is that redemptive love of God will be revealed through the voluntary suffering of Jesus on the cross. It is time for me to leave. He has to leave this world and go back to the Father. But how does this affect us as believers? Tremendously. And Jesus is almost silently looking at His beloved disciples. And He thinks that He loved them. But our text says He loved them to the end. To the uttermost. Jesus loved them completely. The reason believers can endure to the end, which is the same word that is used elsewhere in the gospel, is because Christ loved us to the very end. This to the end, by the way, is the same word that the last words of Jesus from the cross. It is finished. So Jesus loves his disciples. Obviously, he loved them by choosing them for three years, ministering to them. He has been going through them uh, with trials. And remember, these words begin the whole different section of the gospel. That the totality of what follows from Chapter 13 to the end is the way that Jesus will love them from the beginning to the end. You think about his suffering. Jesus could have just opted out. Instead, he continues to love them right to the finishing line. And what is the finishing line here? It's not just a kind gesture of washing dirty feet. It is his sacrificial death for them, for their sin. There at the cross, he displays his love for the sheep to the highest degree possible. That is the full extent of the love of Christ. That he's willing to sacrifice his life for them. And so here, already, the meal is over. The, la the Last Supper uh, takes place 
after the meal, but there's this inter-between. Inter Judas is already scheming to betray Jesus, verse 2 tells us. And Jesus knows that the time is coming. And what is remaining to be done, we, we ask. Verses 4 and 5. The, the, the shock of this act. Jesus lays aside his garment, the outer clothes, like a slave. And he takes a towel. He girds himself around his waist to dry those feet. And he uses a basin. And that is a, an astonishing scene for anyone to notice in the room. As he washes the disciples' feet and wipes them with the towel. Now, washing feet in the ancient culture was a customary thing. I mean, you work, work, walk around all the day in sandals, dusty roads in, in Jerusalem. You had to wash your feet before you then come to a reclining table. They didn't have upper tables like we do. We see this even in the Old Testament. Uh, when Abraham's servants are received by Rebekah through the gesture of hospitality of washing one's feet. Remember one chapter earlier, Mary of Bethany had anointed the feet of Jesus. But the act again is still awkward to begin with. It is still the most humbling act that you could imagine. It's like for someone to kiss your feet as you enter their houses. And to understand the full significance of this gesture, we, we must... Keep in mind who has, who has been doing this. Jesus, the one who had just entered Jerusalem, remember, and, 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 and proclaimed as a king, rightly, the king of Israel, triumphantly. Here comes down and he washes their feet. That is the lowest thing that a servant can do. And so what do we gather from this act? Someone said the measure of a man's greatness is not the number of servants he has, but the number of people he serves. That is what Jesus is doing here. The Savior loved His disciples. The Savior loves us. If you are His true followers, He loves you. But what is love? That is the question. We throw this word around a lot. But do we truly understand the meaning of love? Love, friends, is more than a feeling. Love is even more than good action done without true love. Let me remind you of what the Bible says about love. Love is patient, kind, does not envy, does not boast. I want to underline the word boast because that's exactly what the disciples were doing at this point. They were boasting who is the greatest just before this moment. Love is not arrogant, is not rude, is not insisting in its own way, is not irritable, resentful. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love is not a feeling, it's a caring commitment. A genuine affection, a delight in others, which is grounded in the nature of God Himself. We love God not, but He loved us first. And so prior to loving, we must know and experience this love from the Father. That in the way Jesus spoke, in the way Jesus acted, he, the love of God was manifested. And here the Father's love will be shown supremely in less than 24 hours through sending Jesus Christ and to dying on the cross. Just like we saw in the sacrifice of Isaac this morning in the Sunday school. That's where the full extent of the love of God was being shown. That God sees us in our lowest estate ever. He called us to be disciples. He teaches the twelve concerning what lies ahead and then He dies for them. The cross is what demonstrates the nature and the full extent of the love of God. 
And that is a direction for us. That the love we need to show is sacrificial. One thing is to love another, but to love to the very uttermost is a whole different thing. Jesus was a lover of soul. For Jesus' love meant to lay down his life, to take it up again. Just like a lay down the garment here as he washes their feet. One thing is you, you like someone, but a whole different thing is to give your life for them. And what magnifies the love of God is the unworthiness of the recipient, of me and you. Someone who dare to die for a friend, yes, I'm sure. Yet, what Jesus and the measure of the love of Christ is this. That while dirt was on our feet, while sin was in us, and the world was in our mind, in our rebellion, He loved us and died for us. You see here, Christ's love as a sacrificial act of kindness, as well as the sacrificial death on their behalf. That if you are his own friend, he deals lovingly with you, even as Jesus here is correcting the disciples. This, however, is something special. Love is something for believers. It comes, in fact, with a separation from the world. And love is an alliance that God has with a kingdom that now places a line of demarcation between believers and unbelievers. Why? Jesus, Jesus left the, the crowds, you remember. And now he, he goes to the 11, not even the 12, the 11. And so Jesus today, in fact, the next week will have to remove Judas, the traitor, from the midst of the disciples before he extensively loves them to the uttermost. That's why he is singled out already in our passage, Judas. I mean, think of the willingness of the Savior to wash the feet of Judas, knowing that he will betray him. But even how Judas, think how he felt knowing that he was doing that in secret, in the wretched conscience that was completely unbothered. That he, the Savior is washing his feet and he's planning to nail his feet on a cross. This is the last act of kindness for Judas uh, after that. There's no more kindness. But to understand the significance of washing feet, friends, we have to think as if the king of England were to come to your house today and start to uh, mop the floor or sweep in your kitchen. Who is actually washing the feet is the, is the point. It's to find Jesus not rightly sitting on a throne, but to find him in a shoeshine stand to the airport as a waiter in a restaurant or cleaning toilets, which I know it's repulsive, to the thought, but that's exactly the upset, the, 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 the reaction of the disciples show how this was out of line for them. This display of humility, servitude from their king. But it was necessary because of the attitude of adjustment that the disciples needed. That Christ displays a mindset in direct contrast to their attitude at this time. They were arguing, so and so is the greatest. So-and-so did more miracles than others. So-and-so healed more than others. So-and-so preached more than others. And the disciples were called to see what, what's wrong in their mindset here. Will we look what's wrong in our mindset? You see, Christ came to serve, not to be served. Think of uh, about the majority of churchgoers. We live in a very wealthy uh, uh, nation. There's a lot of vanity. There's a lot of self-exaltation. Everything can rotates around us, right? The mindset of, 
of, of, of many churchgoers to where it's no different and no less in need of change than the disciples here. A lot of people can come to church because they want a church to do things for them rather than serve others. Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So the greatest among us is not the one who has the preeminence, is the one who serves, but he serves out of love. No bitterness, no expecting things in return, no expecting recognition, no, not seeking self-exaltation. Friends, this is for each of us, and that is the role in the body of Christ. If he loved us, we also all to love one another. That's where the gospel is going. But see, in order to share this, this type of love has to be produced divinely by God in our hearts first. You have to experience it for yourself by the hand of God. And that opens your eyes to our bias, like Peter. And that is our second point. We see here the, 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 the setback of Simon, verse 6 to 11. Peter is misunderstanding the purpose of the gesture of Jesus. He doesn't understand that to serve is actually a privilege. That when he looks at the Savior, the Master, the King, lowering himself down and washing with a towel, he thinks that this is too humiliating. In verse 6 and 7, Jesus is going around the room. He washes the, the feet of each of the disciples. Now Peter's turns come and he, he refuses. He says, are you going to wash my feet? Now, rabbis in the Jewish religion had a rule that a true disciple of a rabbi was called to do all the duties of a slave except this very one duty of washing his rabbi's feet because it was considered too humiliating. And here instead in our story you have Jesus the rabbi which does the exact, the reverse for his own disciples. To wash someone's feet is an act of admission of inferiority. What was considered as too menial for the disciples to do for the rabbi is done by the rabbi himself for the disciples. You see how, how that at least you can understand uh, the reluctance of Peter. That Jesus is doing something that he should never be doing. But obviously Jesus, he says, you, you'll get what, I, what this means later. Trust me, Peter. The, the mindset of Peter and the 11 here is in the wrong place. They have wrong priorities. They have, they're looking at personal image. They have a party spirit. And now Peter in verse 8 becomes even more stubborn. He says, you shall never wash my feet. That is the same exact reaction of John the Baptist, by the way. When Jesus comes to be baptized by him, I am not worthy to lose your sandal strips, let alone baptize you. That's how humiliating. That's how this is a, too much of a debasing thing for the king, the Messiah, the son of the living God for doing. But here's the, what is the significance here of what Peter doesn't get. If I do not wash you, you have no part or share with me. Uh, share is a part in the house as a guest. That's what's happening here. And, and, the, and the sharing here is the, the sharing with a person, Jesus Christ. The partnership, the companionship, the fellowship. That if you want to be part of what Jesus is doing, you have to embrace service. I want to say also be humble enough to be served. But there's also that pride in Peter here. He, doesn't, he thinks he's self-sufficient. He doesn't need others. And if he refuses that, he's no longer in this plan of Jesus. That is a strong warning which actually shows us what the meaning is in verse 9 to 11. 
the act of service is that you belong. That, that shows how you belong to the church, essentially. The very thought of losing the connection with the Savior, obviously, turns Peter off. And he says, well, then, don't wash my feet only, but also my hand and my head. If that's what's about, then I want, I want, to, I want you to be all part of me. Which is a wonderful declaration, like a child here. Peter has faith, but however... It takes a lot of patience from the Savior to put up with Peter's impulsive way. We see that all throughout the gospel. He's very impulsive. He speaks without thinking. And Jesus explained the reason. But again, you think about it. Back, back in the days, you have no shoes. You only have sandals. You walk in the dusty roads. The, the, your, your feet are dirty. And that's what needs to be clean, cleansed. But however, the cleanness that Jesus is talking about here is more than the physical cleanness. In Jesus' own words here it says you are not all clean so what jesus is doing here as some prophetic connection to their spiritual cleansing that judas iscariot is the one who's not clean he's not clean in feet but he's not clean in his heart and yet beside judah the disarming meaning behind this act remains and i'm sure he left the 12 convicted at this point Jack Hall says, love is the doorway through which the human soul passes from selfishness to service. And that is what the disciples need to do that. Jesus has come indeed to make us feel uncomfortable, even by a comfortable act like washing feet. How is it that humility embarrasses us so much? We all know how it feels to experience the awkwardness. If someone does things that are kind to us, but not only kind, but things that are not deserved of which we are unworthy. How would you feel if you saw a king doing the servant's work right here? The reason it does make us uncomfortable is because of pride. However, that's exactly what the gospel does, that the king humbles himself to death for the life of you and me. We are dirty. We are in need of washing and so we shouldn't reject something that actually pictures the gospel. We shouldn't question what we simply doesn't understand. And that's what Peter doesn't get here. The reason we become so unsettled when something undeserved comes our way is because it exposes our heart, our selfishness, our pride. If we were in Jesus' shoes, we will never do that. That for us, lordship and Humble service are an oxymoron. That is impossible. It's com incompatible. Plus, we're not kings. And we're not doing half of the service that this king is doing right here. We still think that we are above that. We fail to appreciate. We fail to imitate. Do you at least have that measure of conviction that I'm sure the disciples had? That without this humility, without this sacrificial attitude then service for Jesus is, is nothing. Now, despite the impulsivity of Peter, we can still appreciate his words. The thought of losing fellowship with the Savior is more than he could bear. And it should be that for us. That what Peter, the disciples needed to realize here, is that humble service, suffering, it's what matters. Not the outward demonstration of power or the personal felt importance that is where you are truly serving christ that is what the gospel does once again the king of the universe gives his life he washes unworthy sinners from all of their uncleanness 
And that the temptation is for many to look at that gospel and to refuse such gift in the name of common sense, in the name of pride, feeling that this is too low for, for them, trusting their own sense of what is proper, remaining under the, the, the guise of false humility, rejecting ultimately the gift of salvation, that you have to humble yourself and realize your need of a Savior. But the Savior reference, therefore, to cleansing and to being part with Christ informs the deeper meaning of washing of feet. This is more than acts of service done out of love in the church, which is part of this gesture. Remember, Judaism had this elaborate rites of purification. The washing reminds us of something, doesn't it? That the, the cleansing from sin, which happened through the Holy Spirit, which is often in John compared to water, the bath of regeneration at conversion, but also in the life of the believer and sanctification. So Jesus provides the cleansing. Jesus, what we see here is that the cleansing, the purification of sin, is the requirement to what? To be part of Christ. You have to be cleansed from within. You have to sh then you share with his fellowship in the church and forever in heaven. That Jesus served us to the point of forgiving all of our sin. By the death of Christ, he cleanses all those who, however, humble themselves to receive this inner washing. To be made clean. To be made righteous by the righteousness of Christ. That is humble faith. And such cleansing, however, doesn't stop at salvation. It opens the path of sanctification. That a path of humble service within the community of God's people to, to the point that you are shocking other people. Notice, however, despite undergoing the washing Judas, he's not internally clean. He has no share in either of those things, whether it is being made clean at salvation or in, in sanctification. He's still in the dark in front of the light. He is deaf to the revelation. The revelation of Christ is right in front of his eyes and he's still so far away. So far from the servant's heart of Jesus. So selfishly looking for some extra money to pay the bills. This gesture is an appeal to the conscience of unbelievers who resist the cleansing influence. Who are proud, proud and self-righteous still. Who cannot experience this intimate relationship with Jesus unless they severe from that pride. Unless they severe from sin. And they commit to truly following Christ. Not out of a personal advantage, a position, but out of true, genuine faith. That's what the ultimate meaning of this gesture is. Is the remaining of our text, verse 12 to 20. What is the meaning, the Savior's signification here? That washing feet means this. That you and I in the church, like our master, must be willing to actually engage in lowly service to others in the church. If the Savior did it, so um, we must do it toward one another. After acting out this, Jesus asked to have a teaching session. In verse 12 on, to help us further to understand what, what this washing of feet actually means. Jesus asked this question in verse 12. Do you know what I have done to you? Do you realize what's happening in the room? Verse 13 and 14 explains to us that the humble gesture of washing their feet doesn't deny the nature of Jesus as King, Lord, and God on earth. Jesus says, you call me master, teacher, and Lord, 
and you say, well, but because that's what I am. So none of this is denying the nature of Christ. As indeed, it makes it even more compelling for us. The lesson for us is this, that if I, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, how much more should you wash one another's feet as disciples? And verse 15, the reason was as an example. As a, as a, for us to imitate. This is the model, friends, for us. This is the pattern of discipleship that we should do as he has done to us. We follow his steps. We copycat what Jesus does here. Um, there's a movie that came out a few months ago. It's called The Jesus Revolution. It tells of the story of the Calvary Chapel movement. Uh, not everything is, uh, you know, to be plotted of that movement. But there's, some, there's something about that movie. There's a scene of that movie that I felt was very significant. So here you have the beginning of uh, Chuck Smith's ministry as his church is dying and older members uh, don't like that all these hippies are coming into his church. And uh, they start to join the church and they, they almost threaten Chuck Smith. like, if you're going to continue to go this route, then we have to uh, fire you. I mean, it was a big uh, threat. And then the next Sunday morning you have Chuck on the front of the church and he's there's all this line of hippies and he's washing their feet. And uh, that was the, the, the significance here that Andrew Murray puts it this way. The lack of humility is the sufficient explanation of every defect and failure. And I, I don't think that the purpose of this passage is now that we take it literally. <laughs> uh, that foot washing becomes a practice in our churches. I remember growing up Catholic. We had this on, um, on Easter week that uh, uh, there was this actual practical washing of feet, or you think about Amish communities, they actually practice foot washing to this day. No, the way you practice this passage is by being willing to engage in lowly service in the church. Washing feet is the symbol of that. And in this case, it's also the humble, the, the humbleness of that service. I want to say we, we must pray, first of all, in our church for our deacons that they have this spirit. And whoever God will call to the service as a minister of deacon, that we don't seek preeminence over one another. That was the problem of the 12 right now. Not do things out of personal ambition. The disciples were quarreling about who is the greatest. That is, if you want to look at it, is Luke 22, verse 24 to 27, which is right before this gesture. In other words, what this washing is trying to prevent is a competitive spirit in the church that then flows in backbiting, divisiveness, carnality. I am the rock, said Peter. I am so and so. <laughs> or you can even start serving with grumbling and, and that becomes a disservice to the church. That the sad truth of this feet washing is that after three years of ministry, they have been with the Savior. They still have not learned this crucial lesson. The most important the only concern of the 12 is, remember, Jesus is about to die in less than 24 hours. How about trying to focus on that? No. They want to establish a superiority of rank. And I want to say the church today is filled with the same worldly spirit. Competition. Criticism. Who is the greatest? I follow this. I follow that. I, go to, I got this. I got that. Just like back then. And right around the time when... We, the, the disciples were too proud to serve one another. 
the disciples, the, the, the Savior has to give them a, an unforgettable lesson of humility. And to wake them up and wake us up too, that no matter our position in the church, we are to humbly serve one another in love. That pride is the obstacle of true love. That no matter our role in the church, the command remains always to serve one another in love. Friends, without love, with altered motives, our service becomes nothing. I say this because there are many churches out there that kind of focus service a lot, but out of a self-righteous spirit. You have a lot of worn out sheep that uh, if Christ services without this love from Christ, then it becomes pointless. If Jesus brought this concept, however, all the way to death on the cross, then there is a self-sacrificial love to the very point of death. Laying down our life for one another. We'll see that in coming weeks. And then our text ends in verse 16 to 20. That if you are identified with the Savior, you will do as He did here. A servant is no greater than his master, says verse 16. Think of it. Everyone is inferior to Jesus. And yet the sovereign now took the place of a servant. And now the goal for you and us as disciples is to become like the master. Jesus is here only pointing to the obvious. You think about your jobs. Just like an employee doesn't give order to the employer. So it is between Jesus and the disciples. However, there's something here in the, in the employer. The priorities, the practices of the employer must now become those of the employee. That is the relationship between Jesus and us. And uh, in light of similar statements, we can understand this in the gospel. Matthew, for example, says these words, The disciple is not above this master, nor a servant above his Lord. And Luke is even more helpful. The disciple is not above his master, says Luke, but everyone who is perfect shall be as his master. Luke 22 continues, verse 27. Who is the greater? The one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But, Jesus says, I am among you as the one who serves. In other words, this washing of feet is a call for us to do just as Jesus did. Yes, he served us. But now he commands us as Lord to follow his example. And to do the same by humbling and lovingly serving one another. That he who sent him, just like Jesus was sent by the Father, now the disciples will be sent by Jesus. And we have to have this servant heart. Other gospels put it this way. He who receives you, receives me. He who receives me, receives you, sent me. There is a relationship. Just as the Son served the Father by serving us, so believers now are to serve one another. That's the way we obey this. To display the servant heart even greater than our Master, that He modeled it here in, in such a great way. And one thing, however, verse 17 gives us a warning. One thing is to know those things. Another thing is to... Do them. We as Calvinists know a lot of things, but do we actually practice? Do, do we come to that point of action? That we realize, okay, this is, if this is the truth, then I need to change. Um, how many of, of, of those things are practiced? Because then and only then, friends, there is a blessing involved, which our text says that if you're, you will be happy and blessed if you do them. 
almost as being envied by others because you, people can see the favor upon people who do those things. That if you take this command of Jesus to serve others, you become a source of blessing. However, Jesus clarifies that Judas has nothing to do with this. Verse 18 to 19, he's excluded, he's not among the chosen. The betrayal is about to come. And, and this is a, a prophecy so that the disciples will believe that I am he. That ultimately the evangelistic comment here is for, our, for, for, the, for the completion of the faith of the disciples to realize that Jesus knew even the betrayal was going to happen. And verse 20, our last verse, Jesus will depart. He delegates us, as a, particularly the apostles, and, and that they will bring forward this servanthood. Smith Wigglesworth says this, God has chosen us, but what is the mission now? To help one another. Think of how stunning, how humble and condescending for the King of Kings, our Master and Lord, to wash our feet. You look at the triune God. The love that flows between each person of the Trinity and the way that the Son humbled Himself to come to save us as part of this example. What about us? It, isn't it telling us that humility grows out of this relationship with the Father? That without me you can do nothing. That we are nothing but a piece of dirt in comparison. And sadly many even Christians can feel too high for lowly tasks. They can grumble. That Jesus' model for us is what must flow in the way we treat one another in the church. There's a new lifestyle for the 11, for all of us. That the way up is the way down. The true nature of Christian living is serving one another. You go to the entire New Testament. 30 times this one another comes up. I'm not going to mention them all, but one of them is, for example, wait for one another. as That, that was the context of the Lord's Supper, which we are about to approach. But ultimately, love one another. The, the list of the one another in the New Testament shows that there's, there's not just one way, but diverse way in which we serve in the church. And it's not enough to know those things, but to actually put them in practice. To humbling, pursuing holiness. And that, friends, is our true happiness. There's more joy in giving than in receiving. That's what ultimately also brings rewards from God. That you enjoy a life in harmony with this truth. That as you did with the one of the least of these, you, as, as, as you did it to me, and you share sorrows and joy together in the church. That's what we've been called as believers, to bear fruit together in our marriage. Husbands are to, supposed to wash their wives with the word of God, to sacrificially pursue sanctification in marriage rather than status quo. Uh, I like what the God, the, uh, God has to say in 1 Timothy 5.10 to the widows. Widows that Paul congratulates. He says, the widows who have washed the feet of the saints. Imagine what that entails for them. The ways in which we, they, even in their widowhood, serve the community. Now you tell me how any of this is possible without being active member of a local church. I think that's the, the, the part. That ultimately, the way you fulfill this one another's friend is not by yourself. And it's not even by just Sunday morning. It's that you, to this vital connection in the church, you serve in the church and you become, the church as a whole becomes a source of blessing for many. That's how we fulfill the mission of Christ. And that is a service that is not burdensome, but is, is, is joyful, is delightful. 
and it actually leads people to believe in the one who sent us to fulfill this calling. So how do we, how do we make sense of the washing of feet, friends? I mean, how does a servant leader look like? All we have to do is to look at Jesus right now in this, in this text. You just don't have to go further than Jesus. Here we have one of the greatest examples of a servant leadership in all the scripture. Jesus, remember, is about to die. He could be wrapped in all the turmoils and troubles that he sends his soul over the coming passion, which is definitely taking place. He could seek to retreat. He could seek to mistrust, mistrust even the betrayer who is sitting right there in the room. But he doesn't do any of that. He selflessly, instead, washes our feet. He shows by that act how soon he will clean us from the washing of his blood. But he also set a pattern for us. How it looks like to truly serve one another. Even to the most humble way imaginable. Friends, do you at least feel convicted like the twelve as they watch the scene? Perhaps paralyzed in shame. Perhaps remembering times where your life used to be fruitful and full of service. But now you finally realize until this point I've been quite, quite selfish. And you realize how worthy you are of even being one of the children of God, that he, he comes and lay down and washes me from my sins, and I'm part of his church. I'm unworthy of this. And you, you wonder, how am I to do this practically? Well, I want you to know, that's actually a good starting point. You, as you humble yourself, you pray that the Lord will remove any selfishness from you. You begin to switch priorities in your life. You begin to want to live like that, one act of after another. I want to say, especially this Christmas season, I mean, there's plenty of ways that we can show kindness and selfless service. And that is a call for us as a church. Are we going to wash one another's feet? I'm not asking you to do that. Literally, by the way, my feet really stink, and um, I want you to spare from that. But I, I really, do we want a theater to be remembered as a church where people serve? And I want, I want to encourage and commend this church for that, just so you know. Many of you served very well. In many very, very good ways. And that to me is a very great encouragement. But there's an exhortation here to do even better. To fuel our task with the love of Christ. And the task, by the way, that is done best when unnoticed. When uncalled for. And for God's glory, not ours. See, the problem with the twelve was that they were thinking to, to, about themselves so highly. That lowly tasks were beyond them. And they, they, they were maybe seeing service as a mean rather than an end. They were comparing, competing. Who is the greatest? You, see, you want to know who is the greatest in God's mind? The servant of all. At the end of the day, when we, when we die, we go to heaven. The way that to be first in the kingdom of God is to be last. And I want to say many Christians might be surprised when the reversal will take place. The, the humble will be exalted. I want to end with this story by the Puritan John Owe. He served as a chaplain in Oliver Cromwell's army. Now, during this time, he was often approached for assistance by others, and he never refused any worthy request. He was always willing to, to help. And one day Cromwell said to him, Mr. Owe, you have asked favors for everybody except yourself. When does your turn come? And here's the reply of Owe. My turn, my Lord Protector, is it always comes when I can serve another. Friends, that's what it means to embrace 
the full measure of the image of Christ, that nothing is more joyful than serving. I want to say nothing of this is possible on our own. God has to first open our eyes to our selfishness, but also we need the Holy Spirit. We need the love of Christ to, to first fuel through us, pour out on our hearts, but it doesn't remain there. And when you abide in Christ, you share life in the community and to others. It just spills over. And it reminds us of these few simple rules in the kingdom of God. That greatness is abasement, service is a privilege, and love is 